Oh, the shame that will get. If you've let all the fans down. Can we not knock this? It's a fact. I'm not playing mind games. I'm talking about facts. I always said if I was Aladicio, they'd probably say I was more of a tactical genius. The answer questions on anything. Uh, religious, politics, uh, health, you know, sexual uh, problems. Look at his face! Just look at his face! None of you except for those two have done anything to justify the money that you earn. None of you! Disgrace! And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Now you're very welcome along to Team 33, the football happy hour here in Off The Ball. What a week of football, the Champions League returns and suddenly it feels like the era of Ronaldo and Messi has come to an end with Erling Haaland and Kylian Mbappe coming to the fore. Somebody asked on Twitter actually, would you rather have Kylian Mbappe or Erling Haaland in your team? For me, it's Erling Haaland and I have been beating the drum for Kylian Mbappe over the last couple of years but Haaland is just so powerful that's the one reason I would have him Kylian Mbappe will not always have his pace but somebody made the good point that Erling Haaland will always be big and it just gets the feeling when he plays well he absolutely annihilates teams he destroys them with his power and by god I'd love to see him playing in England to see what he could do but we're not talking about the Champions League tonight we're talking about something that I have been quite obsessed with for quite a long time and it's the theme that I've been trying to get on the show over the last couple of months and that is the link and the impact politics and war has on the world of football because it absolutely does have an impact on football. One region that has felt the effects of this and is still intertwined with it to this day is the area formerly known as Yugoslavia. Now they are Croatia, Serbia, Kosovo, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Slovenia, Macedonia and Montenegro. To discuss all of this, I'm joined on the line by Jelena Jurunovic. Jelena, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for the invitation. So before we get started, let's get an introduction to yourself. What's your basis and what's your knowledge in this topic? I'm a historian of Yugoslavia and the post-Yugoslav space, and this is actually my full-time job. I work at the University of Vienna in Austria. But uh, football and its relation to both history and politics in Yugoslavia has been like kind of my hobby and passion as well. So this is something I deal with. I tend to write a lot of um, different magazine articles about football in both Yugoslavia, but also in the post-Yugoslav space. Yeah, and I actually read your article in the Irish publication, Pogmagol, that's how I found you. So it, it was football against all evil was the piece if you want to check that out. I think a lot of people would be roughly aware of what Yugoslavia was, but a lot of things have changed and it's even changing to this day. I had to almost stumble across the North Macedonia part because that's, I think that's only recent that it changed to North Macedonia. So can you just give us a brief history of Yugoslavia in terms of who they were and what changed and the time periods of which change happened in the region? So Yugoslavia was established in 1918 as the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes, but it adopted the name Yugoslavia, the Kingdom of Yugoslavia, in 1929. Uh, this region uh, is involved the present-day countries Slovenia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Croatia, Serbia, Kosovo, and North Macedonia. And Montenegro. You always forget about Montenegro for some reason. And um, 
the Second World War was the crucial moment, and uh, we will be talking quite a lot about the Second World War, I think, uh, in this conversation, because the first thing that happened was in 1941 that this kingdom of Yugoslavia was basically smashed by the Axis occupation powers. And this was also the time when Yugoslavia, as a socialist federation of these countries that I uh, mentioned, emerged. So during the Second World War, uh, the struggle of the Yugoslav partisans led by the Communist Party of Yugoslavia against both occupation and domestic collaboration uh, was at the same time a socialist revolution. And we refer to it as the People's Liberation War, and this is where socialist Yugoslavia came to being. And as probably most of uh, your listeners will know, uh, socialist Yugoslavia disintegrated through a series of very violent armed conflicts involving mass atrocities against civilians, genocide, and uh, they took place in Croatia and then in Bosnia and Herzegovina, in Kosovo, and eventually also in North Macedonia. And these legacies are still very much visible and tangible in the post-Yugoslav societies, in politics, in everyday life, in popular culture, and of course, in football. Mm. In terms of the World War II, in terms of the Allied struggle, was Yugoslavia, since it was socialist, would have lean towards communism or was it socialist? Because I know that a couple of clubs have taken the red star of communism as well. So where do they stand on that? Well, I mean, it was the partisan struggle was led by the Communist Party of Yugoslavia. Uh, we refer to socialist Yugoslavia as state socialism, but um, you can also call it the communist regime. And um and I think uh, if you look at especially at the history of communism and workers' history in the region of Yugoslavia, uh, it is not only the Second World War and the post-war period until the 90s, which is important, but also the interwar period in the Kingdom of Yugoslavia where uh, the communist movement emerged and where uh, in, in the sphere of sports, different workers' clubs also emerged that were the kind of places where the communist illegal activities took place and how communists also got organized. Okay. Football, like in, in Yugoslavia, like many regions, was very influenced by Western culture and the British sailors coming over into the Adriatic Sea with with trade. And that's generally how football spread across the world as well. I, I remember I spoke a couple of weeks ago to a journalist in Russia, and that's essentially how football started in Russia as well. In terms of football during the World War time, uh, 1940s, what was it like in Yugoslavia? So, uh, as I said, uh, first thing we have to understand is that football played a very important role um, during the interwar period. And, uh, but also it was because it was the crucial aspect of kind of uh, interwar workers and communist history where the already mentioned worker clubs were uh, places where illegal activities took place. And then naturally, many of them joined the partisans in 1941 when the uprising started. And here we have, during the Second World War, during the parallel also socialist revolution that was taking place, football was kind of the inseparable part of the establishment of Yugoslav state socialism during the war. And... What was really interesting that during the whole madness of the war time, the Yugoslav partisans kind of found time to play football uh, in their 
pastime, you know, and it was the, probably the most popular activity in the territories liberated by the partisans. And there are many examples of different games that were played by the partisans in the various towns or villages, regions that they liberated. And it was also kind of a way to celebrate victories. So there were these like small games that took place across uh, the country. But of course, um, the Communist Party of Yugoslavia established its headquarters uh, after the capitulation of Italy in 1943 in uh, Croatian island of Vis. And this is also where the partisan soldiers basically started playing football against the allies. And there were various tournaments, which is like really interesting if you look at it as a part of this world war <laughs> where people yeah. are playing football. And in 1944, this is also where Hajduk from Split, uh, the club, uh, was revived as the official team of the Yugoslav resistance movement and kind of the official team of the Yugoslav revolution. And of course, like after the war, also football still served the revolutionary uh, role and uh, football teams and players uh, were often ambassadors of Yugoslav state and regime. There was like some kind of football diplomacy going on where teams traveled across Western Europe, but also across the world, uh, non-aligned countries in Africa and Asia and represented uh, the Yugoslav state. Split is a, an area that's quite interesting because you have, you have two clubs, you've got Hajek and you've got RNK. I think we'll touch on Hajek later on in the show because they come into modern day football a little bit more, but let's talk about RNK because that's actually the club that you focused on in your piece for Pogba Goal as well. And they seem to be quite an interesting club at this period of time, especially. Yeah. And like, I think I forgot to mention the Western influences a bit because I think that's also interesting how football came to the region at all. Uh, and I, I would just maybe shortly mention that it was mostly the urban elites who were studying in particularly these Central European cities of Vienna, Budapest and Prague, who kind of brought football back to the region. And this is how like there are these like really uh, nice stories and legends about who brought the first leather ball uh, to to Belgrade or to Serbia, to Croatia and so on. And uh, this is kind of uh, the Western influence was very direct in this way that people who lived somewhere in Western Europe or Central Europe simply brought the game. Um, back to the region but when it comes to uh, the workers club the workers football club split uh, that I'm going to just simply refer to as split from now on not to just like get confused with the shortcuts and everything I think this is um, also the great mirror of the history of Yugoslavia because it was established as kind of an anarchist club very important for uh, this revolutionary and workers history but also then 100 years later it ends up, you know, exploiting underpaid or unpaid players owned by, by businessmen who like completely ruined it while using the revolutionary history for popularity or who knows what. So um, today they play in the third Croatian division and are quite small, uh, have very small fan base. But they started in 1912 when a group of basically uh, pupils of a school, vocational school in Split got together and formed club, club with a name Anarch. And uh, they, you know, it wasn't really, they did call it uh, to play football 
against all evil, uh, as like this is very often uh, quoted, and this was also the name of my piece. But uh, it wasn't like it didn't emerge from some kind of organized political movement. Uh, it was just young boys who got together and who were into anarchism and split, you know, with uh, docks and uh, being a worker city. It wasn't really strange that uh, the club was established like that. And did the club, how did the club then grow to eventually be the club that would produce several people and volunteers that would go and fight in different areas, the war for socialism? Well, you know, uh, what has to be mentioned is that they really faced repression and they were shut down a few times. They were renamed a couple of times. They merged with different clubs. It was a very, very turbulent history uh, during the interwar period. But sometimes in the 30s, they turned to communism and they changed the name of uh, their jerseys from black to red. And they also add a red star to the logo. I didn't really find sources explaining why and how this exactly happened and the agency behind it. But this was also the time that you mentioned uh, they were involved in uh, numerous solidarity actions during the Spanish Civil War uh, that existed around Yugoslavia. Almost 2,000 people from Yugoslavia actually fought in the international brigades in Spain. And many of them were connected to these various workers' uh, sports clubs as uh, members or players. And uh, Split attempted that was the last attempt to send uh, volunteers to Spain, which was, you know, illegal. Uh, and mm -hmm. they attempted to send around 150 volunteers uh, from Dalmatia to Spain in 1937 and um, by boat. So it failed because um, the, the boat carrying these men was waiting to be uh, picked up by a ship that would take them to Spain. But the French ship did not wait for them and it had left before. So what happens uh, is that instead going to the Spain to Spain uh, to fight, the men ended up on one of the islands near Split and the locals informed the Yugoslav authorities. And, you know, being, being a communist and being involved in this kind of, in any kind of leftist uh, politics in the interwar period was not really safe thing to do and the Yugoslav authorities were really brutal in repressing uh, it so they informed the authorities which means that these men were ended up being arrested and they were kept in prisons for around six weeks according to the sources okay and in terms of Yugoslavia at that point in time in the interwar period it seems that there was a couple of factions that were in support of a communist revolution against the Axis, would that have been the general feel of Yugoslavia at this point? Or would they have fought hard against them? Would, there, would Yugoslavia have been a key area for the Allies to target as somewhere that could potentially rise up against it? Well, uh, at, uh, when Yugoslavia was occupied uh, after April 1941, which is when the Second World War started for, for Yugoslavia, it was completely dismembered but by various Axis forces and their collaborators. So various parts of Yugoslavia belonged to various, to either Germany or Italy or Hungary. And then the independent state of Croatia was this like domestic Croatian fascist puppet state uh, that um, also existed. And the People's Liberation Movement, so the Yugoslav partisans, they were the only... Uh, 
continuous resistance movement that operated in the territory of uh, former Yugoslavia. Uh, the movement that did not collaborate at some point uh, with the occupation and so on. And what is interesting is that at the end of the war in 1945, the partisans uh, liberated Yugoslavia on their own. So like Yugoslavia, unlike some other later communist countries, wasn't uh, liberated by the Red Army, but uh, it was the authentic Yugoslav movement that did it. And across uh, Yugoslavia, there were various domestic collaborators that the, the biggest uh, one that also reached statehood was the independent state of Croatia, but across Serbia as well, across Kosovo, Northern Macedonia, Slovenia, and so on, there were various movements that were uh, collaborating with the occupation forces for various reasons. Okay. And in terms of the post-war period, did the states always want to reunite together as Yugoslavia? Or how did that uh, affect the region after the, after the war? Uh, Yugoslavia was established already during the war in 1943, officially, uh, by the People's Liberation Movement uh, at a meeting uh, in the territory of present-day Bosnia and Herzegovina. And there were various groups that uh, went into forests and that uh, continued fighting the Yugoslav authorities and uh, the army. But um, there were no serious movements to separate from uh, Yugoslavia. Of course, there were, especially in political immigration, because many of people who didn't want to face retribution for their, their wartime collaboration uh, fled to the United States, to, to South America, obviously, to various countries. And they also, some of them did work on... in using various means to have their statehood back, to have their independent country. But as we know, uh, this uh, did not succeed until the 90s. What about football in the post-war then? How does it recover? Well, um, I think after the Second World War, so uh, football played, as I said, very important role. And some of the clubs were shut down because they were not uh, considered to be appropriate for the uh, socialist regime that was emerging. And some of the interwar clubs were simply renamed, by, but kept. And like, I think the most uh, known examples of the clubs that were established by the regime and its various aspects after the war are the Red Star and Partisan from Belgrade, uh, who both of the clubs, uh, Partisan was, for example, established by the Yugoslav People's Army. It was kind of the army's club and uh, the Red Star was uh, established by some kind of youth association. So there were various, um, there was a really, really rapid process of building stadiums, providing infrastructure for sports. And many of these sporting associations that involved football clubs were established across the country. And um, as I already mentioned, then in the later period, especially after the split with the Soviet Union in 1948, um, then club, uh, football was also used as means of uh, diplomacy and showing um, the being uh, so showing the, to be successful. And you had these clubs touring, like they toured more than then they played at home, basically. Like many of them spent like the entire year just touring the various African or Asian countries. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, that, that was really interesting um, because Yugoslavia, of course, also exported um, its uh, football experts and sporting experts to different non-aligned countries, meaning that in many African countries, uh, the coaches of national teams, for example, were from Yugoslavia. Okay. The 1990s are the key period for Yugoslavia because that's when you see the different factions of the countries and the eventual fall of the region. Let's talk about that first and how that then came to affect what we're seeing now in terms of football in in these regions. And when did the first sign of trouble start to arise in the region? I would say that that was already in the 80s after Josip Broz Tito, lifetime president of Yugoslavia, died uh, in 1980. There was the overall crisis. And this is like, if we talk about anything today about the problem of nationalism and of the far right, for example, we have to really look at the 80s as this uh, forming uh, years of uh, all the problems that would later uh, ensue. And there was the overall crisis in Yugoslavia, in economy, uh, the crisis of the legitimacy of the regime after Tito died. Um, and this was the time when, so like, it, it wouldn't be right to say that nationalism uh, had not existed before. This was the, the time actually when it started being expressed in the public widely. Uh, in Serbia, for example, this was also the time when different more critical and negative stories about the Yugoslav revolution started emerging in the public sphere, when people started talking about partisans' enemies as victims of communism and so on. And this was also, when we talk about football, this is the time when sports, when stadiums become the kind of the platform and the field for nationalist mobilization. And uh, of course, we have to look at the wider context, international context. This is also the time when some ultras groups uh, become really prominent in Italy or in England. And so in Yugoslavia wasn't exceptional in that case because uh, ultras groups, more organized ultras groups started forming. But however, that happened, that coincided with this rapid rise of nationalism in the public sphere. And this is when they become also radicalized and um, when they start, for example, and they never really went back from that radicalization of the 80s. So if you look at it, uh, if, as I said, if you look at football, it became a very fertile soil for nationalist mobilization already in the, from the mid 80s on. And then groups became very politicized. And uh, also this is where different chants started about the Second World War, about the Ustasha, about the Chetniks, about these collaborators um, and partisans' enemies. Anti-Yugoslavism uh, became very popular in stadiums. Hatred, expressing hatred towards other ethnic groups from Yugoslavia. All these very forbidden things that started being very appealing to fans, of course, and that were kind of really exploding in stadiums. And would that have come to a, a, a fore, I suppose, when the wars broke out? Because there was genocide taking place on, on all sides from this. So I can imagine then it would have been a very hostile environment. Yes. And, you know, this is something I often repeat. We have to look at, uh, footballs, uh, at football and football fans as some kind of mirror of society. 
So, of course, many of uh, football fans from Serbia and from Croatia joined different paramilitary units. And this is something we still don't know enough about in Croatia, a bit more than in Serbia. In Serbia, being, you know, the loser in the wars, um, the Red Star fans are not precisely running around uh, uh, talking about it, how they fought in paramilitary units, although they, you know, they wouldn't really be punished, obviously, in Serbia. But um, this is when fans start not only chanting and fighting in stadiums, uh, but they also start uh, actually fighting in wars as uh, paramilitaries. And um, of course, it is really important to say, because this is a very common uh, place when it comes to Yugoslavia, that there was this explosion of nationalism in the early 90s. No uh, violence, nationalist uh, incidents, all sorts of chants uh, had been present before. And uh, we can see that there were various incidents happening already in the 50s, for example, and the interwar period as well. So this is not something completely new, mm-hmm. but, but the the context where it takes place, the state that is uh, falling apart and the armed conflicts, that kind of changed the context a little bit in the sense that you could go and actually fight against these people you used to chant about. Mm-hmm. One thing that I found really interesting about this, and it sort of touches on what we spoke about with, with Split, was the rise of fascist and fascism chants when it came to Croatian football and some of their far-right supporters and hooliganism, because of the background of Split and their anarchist roots and their socialist roots, it took me a surprise by Hajduk and their link with the fascist movement. So can you just explain where that comes from? Yeah, well, um, I think if you look at the at fascism and the problem of the far right in the post-Yugoslav space in football, uh, you have to understand the very basic thing that all of these fan groups wanted to escape Yugoslavia, everything that's related to Yugoslavia, even the clubs that still still, uh, bear names, partisan and Red Star, you know, given to them by the Yugoslav regime. And so in this like the great escape from communism and Yugoslavia and its legacies, they embraced various Second World War enemies of the partisans. In the Croatian case, and this is with Hajduk, obviously, uh, and Dinamo and many others, it's a wider phenomenon. It is the Ustasha, the wartime um, fascist puppet state in the service of Nazi Germany that was also responsible for the Holocaust in the territory of uh, the independent state of Croatia, genocide against Serbs, against Roma, repression, killings of political enemies, and so on. So this is what happens, like uh, trying to escape Yugoslavia basically means embracing uh, something opposite to that. And in the Croatian case, that's the Ustasha. In the Serbian case, that's the Chetniks, obviously, as well. And um, if you look at uh, the sphere of football in Croatia, particularly, there is the slogan um, Zadom Spremni, ready for the homeland, which was the slogan of the independent state of Croatia, so Ustasha's slogan, basically. And this is also a very common space, uh, place between among uh, fan groups, among national team uh, followers and fans, and it is considered as some kind of expression of patriotism, 
And there are always some kind of scandals about it. Uh, you probably know when uh, Croatian player Josip Šimunić in 2014 wanted to celebrate qualifications, chanting this with fans. There are always some kind of punishments. And maybe because of that, it is not so much common anymore when it comes to the national team. But this slogan is crucial for uh, club football. And this is what you will see most of... Um, most of uh, fans chant. And this brings together the Second World War and the 90s, because in the 90s, this slogan was also revived mm -hmm. uh, during the war in Croatia. And for Serbia, and we will talk about it, uh, this most important commonplace is Kosovo. Okay, and can you explain, because I actually forgot, I, I left Kosovo out when I was introducing the show and in terms of Yugoslavia, because that's a relatively new area as well. Can you explain that link with Serbia and Kosovo and why they might be at loggerheads? So if you look at organized fan groups in Serbia, all of them have uh, choreographies involving something about Kosovo. They all have these, they do murals, they do slogans. Kosovo is heart of Serbia. Kosovo is uh, uh, Serbia simply and so on. And this is really crucial. If you really look at uh, various uh, games and the terraces, you will see Kosovo as um, the repeating team. And it is, Kosovo is, as I said, uh, football is always mirroring the society and dominant politics. And Kosovo is the most important team for Serbian national identity. Kosovo is something to be protected. And like any kind of gesture such as... Um, the Albanian eagle is basically putting the finger in the eye of uh, the football fans. And of course, they go crazy because Kosovo mm -hmm. is something to be protected. Kosovo is Serbian, although it has been an independent state since 2008. But uh, this is something the Serbian public uh, is not reconciling with. And um, any kind of provocation coming from uh, Albanians, for example, uh, is like what makes people simply crazy. And... Um, this has been the case, Kosovo as a myth, as, as this mythical uh, space in, for Serbian national identity, has been constructed for over a century. And this is what makes it really uh, easy to understand why football fans would be so crazy about mm -hmm. it. Why would people go there in 98, 99, volunteer to commit war crimes, for example? Because, you know, there's this really strong narrative of Kosovo as the heart of Serbia. Okay. And um, yeah, a century of uh, building the myth basically ends up then uh, having these, like we all remember the drone incident and like various incidents involving um, Kosovo and Albanians and then the Serbian football fans. It just like makes them go crazy. Yeah, the eagle symbol was something that cropped up. I think it was in the World Cup a couple of years ago when Shakiri and Jaka, who are playing for Switzerland, but are, have Albanian origins, they did the eagle symbol against Serbia and it went crazy. So I think that sort of explains it a little bit in terms of, because it's something that you mentioned and so it's almost the theme of this episode is the mirroring of society in football in the region. Football is often a hotbed of the worst and the best parts of society at times. Is the wider society in the regions, and I know we're talking a, a big region here, we're talking five, six, six, seven different identity states. Is it mirroring the general feel of society or is it just mirroring the political 
the farthest, most hardcore elements of the society? I think it really mirrors the general society. And that's, uh, that's a problem because most of fans are far right. Organized fans are far right. There's no doubt about that. But you will find many people who are not far right in general population who will be all uh, surveys done, for example, about Kosovo. Most of people in Serbia consider it uh, the heart of Serbia. And there's nothing you can do about it. The same goes for, for example, celebration of war uh, criminals and genocide perpetrators such as uh, Ratko Mladic, that most of people in Serbia would probably consider him a hero. And it is not really strange to see it then in terraces, of course. Okay. And is that a worry for the general area? Because I think across, especially Western civilization at the minute, there's a real worry of the rise of the far right and how prominent they have become. Is that something that's been mirrored in politics in, in, in Serbia and in Croatia and Montenegro and all these different states? Would they be more right-leaning? Yes, definitely. And in, especially there are ups and downs. Sometimes uh, governments are more right-wing, sometimes a bit less. But at the moment, for example, in Serbia, I mean, to say it in very simple terms, if you don't have any kind of leftist party existing in the parliamentary politics at all, why would you have leftist football fan groups? Mm -hmm. And this is probably too broad of a question, but in general, for the the LGBTQ community and the more societal left-wing ideals, is it a safe region for those type of people? Well, like broadly saying, I would say yes, uh, safe as any other country. But of course, uh, there is a lot of kind of uh, conservative uh, mood and uh, attitude uh, across the region. And uh, well, you know, uh, the prime minister of Serbia is uh, lesbian. And that was celebrated quite a lot uh, internationally as something positive. She's a woman. And she's a homosexual and she is uh, the prime minister, but she's right wing and she has done nothing to further the rights of the LGBTQ people in Serbia. She didn't bring any kind of positive changes. I mean, she's she's right wing. The mm-hmm. fact that she's a woman and that she's uh, she's gay, that's not really improving anything for anyone. OK. Okay, fair enough. And in terms of football, just to round this off, football in the region at the minute, can you give us a, an insight into the standings of each club and sort of the, the leanings that they would have, the, the, the bigger ones that most people would know? Uh, well, uh, there are in socialist Yugoslavia, there was something called the Big Four, which was uh, Dinamo from Zagreb, Hajduk from Split and Partizan Red Star from Belgrade. And after Yugoslavia disintegrated and this federal league uh, fell apart into the national leagues, these clubs uh, continued dominating and they dominate fully, completely, the first uh, divisions in both Serbia and Croatia. And they were basically, I think, like you, as you know, like if you, you could compare it to the League of Ireland, for example, where you have a lot of small clubs, small stadiums, small audiences. But... Um, and then these big clubs that stayed and they involved their club management involves uh, businessmen 
politicians. Uh, for example, the president of Serbia at the moment is a Red Star fan, who was also a fan, organized fan in the 90s. And that, of course, just further perpetuates their uh, dominance uh, in football. There is internationally as well, people mostly know these clubs, people don't know any of the clubs from small towns. Uh, sometimes some random small clubs also enter the first league that you, like even coming from Serbia, you don't even know how to find a place on the map. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, but it is completely dominated and it is also from Red Star and Partizan to any other smaller, uh, not prominent club, uh, the sphere of football is fully dominated by corruption and uh, various, uh, there is still problem of uh, match fixing, for example, and uh, nepotism, tax frauds, various, various problems uh, that, uh, that continue and will continue because also the state actors are involved in club management. Mm -hmm. I think most people would know of the different derbies amongst the, the certain countries. So, for example, you have the Eternal Derby, as it's known, between Dynamo Zagreb and Hedjik Split. What would happen if a club from Croatia were mashed up with a club from Serbia in say the champions league for example would that be a very hostile environment or yeah 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 <laughs> i mean you can imagine if you look at the history of it it would be very hostile and you know there are there have been talks for ages about the regional league mm -hmm. and there is there are examples of regional competitions in basketball for example and no one really made big fuss about it but when it comes to football Everyone, all fans are against it. They don't really want it. And they're really against, uh, especially like, for example, in Croatia, you have also this, like, we don't want another Yugoslav league. Uh, the the anti-communism and uh, being very anti-Yugoslav is also important there. And I think like a regional league would be really, really stressful. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I thought the answer would be yes when I was asking that question and I, <laughs> I, I figured it would be. And just before we finish up then, in terms of the region itself, because I think there's a lot of movement in terms of international politics and how things are changing everywhere, especially even, even in Ireland now with Brexit and Northern Ireland and Ireland and the relations and how that's going to last. And there's still sort of the, the leftover tension from the late 80s to early 90s is the region formerly known as Yugoslavia in terms of the peace times between them it, are we of the thought that it, it's going to continue for years to come or is there tension there where, where are we in that there are uh, tensions and for some uh, conflicts such as between Kosovo and Serbia you can consider it uh, undone and unfinished and this will probably continue uh, for many, many years to come. Um, just example of it uh, is uh, Serbia refusing to recognize Kosovo as a state and trying always to obstruct uh, Kosovo's participation in international sporting competitions, for example, or heritage initiatives as uh, UNESCO even. Well, Jelena, that was absolutely fascinating and really great chatting with you about the football in the region. And also, if you want to read Jelena's piece in Pogmagol, you can get that on their website as well. Pogmagol, there's some brilliant stories in that issue, including Jelena's piece, Football Against All Evil. Jelena, thanks for joining me today. 
Thank you. And that's us about done for Team 33 this week. I hope you enjoyed it. And remember, if you want to listen back to that or any of the previous episodes, you can get them in the OTB Podcast Network in the OTB Sports app or wherever you get your podcast. We will be back again next week with some more football culture. But until then, take away, Johan. Johan.